Good morning. I'm Liz Francho, and I'm very grateful to be here this morning with y'all. Our reading is from John 19 through 34. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So they said to him, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I'm the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The word of the Lord. Well, we're grateful, um, Liz, thanks for reading that. Um, we're grateful to be continuing in the service uh, or the sermon series today. We, we started last week kind of chipping away at the gospel of John. This sermon series is going to take us a, a couple of years. We're just going to be kind of picking a chapter at a time, and we'll be doing other sermon series kind of between this, but we're spending three weeks on John 1 right now. Later in the year, we'll spend a couple of weeks on John 2, and after that, we'll spend a couple of weeks on John 3. And so we'll periodically pick a chapter of the gospel of John, spend a few weeks on it, and uh, and continue. Last week, of course, if you were with us, we, we looked at this Big introduction. I mean, verse 1 through 18, I said it's it's this kind of cataclysmic statement where John covers just so much ground, so much meaningful ground in his introduction to the gospel. And this week, really, even though it's a little more pointed, it is no less consequential. It's it's centered around John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is is a is kind of a Bible character that we heard about, that we know about, that, but it's, it's incredibly important in terms of understanding Christ, in terms of understanding the Lord, in terms of understanding who our Savior Jesus really is. And I think this uh, passage helps us understand three things in particular uh, about John the Baptist. We learn who he was, we learn what he said, and we also learn what he did. And these are three things that I, I want to talk about today um, that I think they are just important for the sake of John's ministry, but for, of course, the ministry of Jesus. So who was John? 
In some ways, the story of Jesus begins with John. I think it's interesting in the Gospel of Luke, the foretelling of Jesus really kind of begins with the story of John and how he came into being. Um, uh, the, the Gospel of Luke really details this: the birth of John. John and Jesus were related. They were, they were likely Mary and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Mary, the mother of Jesus. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, were first cousins. So their mothers were likely sisters, so that would have made John and Jesus, I think, third cousins. Um, it's hard to know how the, the cousin branch things work, but I think John and Jesus probably would have been third cousins. We don't know that uh, for sure. Uh, but one of the things we do know about John that's fascinating is the Bible says, and we actually read the account of this, that John was filled with the Holy Spirit from the time that he was in his mother's womb. John was a spirit-filled man even actually before he was born. In fact, uh, we've uh, talked about this in our systematic theology class when we talk about regeneration. John is one of the accounts where he was born again before he was born the first time. That's not typically the pattern. But John, before he was even born, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, we meet John. He's been out in the wilderness baptizing, calling people to repentance, uh, and, and of course, he did this in this ministry of baptism. Now, baptism, the idea of a spiritual cleansing was not uncommon at this time. What was uncommon was someone being baptized by another, someone calling you into baptism and, and doing the act of baptism for you. And so John kind of became known for this as John the baptizer or John the Baptist. Uh, in fact, there's this really interesting, if you go to Israel, and we're taking a trip next year, I would invite you, those of y'all watching, sign up, it's going to be incredible. But there's an interesting pool in Qumran where you can really understand what was going on with the spiritual cleansing. And it, it's basically just a pool, like a small, it's, it's about the size of like a backyard swimming pool. And, uh, but there's a big staircase going in and a big staircase coming out. And, and the Essenes who were working on the word of the Lord there at uh, Qumran, where they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, they would walk in dirty, and they would come out clean. They would walk down one staircase, they would walk out another staircase. So that was a common practice, this idea uh, of spiritual cleansing. But again, what was uncommon was what John was doing, baptizing other people and calling them to repentance. And that was what his message was, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is here. And John began to get a, a pretty big following uh, at this time. He was a very famous figure. I think that needs to be understood also. John was known. He was widely known about. We even see this in, in other histories. For example, the writings of Josephus, the, the, the wide kind of ministry impact influence that John had. At the time of Christ, it can't be overstated the corruption that was going on among the religious leaders of the time, really throughout all of Israel. Rome was ruling over the people of Israel, and Herod, who was a Jewish man, who was the Jewish governor, had really made a deal with the Romans. Basically, he said, look, if you'll kind of let us have a big temple, let us have some nice things, we'll, base, I'll, we'll do whatever you want, and, and I'll, we won't be crazy, we won't be fanatics, uh, we'll kind of keep, we'll have our kind of private religion, just let us uh, continue in authority, let us continue in power. And it was very, the religious leaders at this time, they, they turned a blind eye to this. They didn't care uh, about some of the uh, atrocities that were really going on uh, in Herod's reign. And then, of course, in his son's 
uh, he had four sons that were even worse than him. Uh, the religious leaders particularly turned a blind eye to them. We'll talk about that in here in a little bit. And so John coming out, I mean, it was this, it was this kind of fresh wind of gospel preaching. You know, it, imagine in a scenario where kind of the whole church has gone corrupt and, and finally someone is calling back, calling people back to the true worship of God, calling people to repentance, calling people to the holiness of God. And people loved this about John and, and they were amazed by him. And, and he was, again, very, very famous. This, um, I mentioned earlier the Montgomery bus boycotts and the kind of the civil rights movement, all that it's, you know, it's hard to believe all that was about 60 years ago, right? So the uh, March on Selma, the, the letter to the Birmingham jail, the March on Washington, this 57, 60 years ago, right around that time. So the, the space between that and now is about the same space between when these events were happening around the life of John the Baptist and when John, the gospel writer, was recording these things. And again, John the Baptist, kind of like a Martin Luther King figure, was this larger-than-life figure that most many people loved, but also that a lot of people really hated. And, and of course, the end of the story with John is, you know, he eventually, according to some of these political leaders at the time, kind of crossed the line. Uh, so again, Herod the Great, who was the king around the time of Jesus, had four sons, they took over. They started ruling in different parts of the world. Uh, they were very corrupt, very evil, and most of them not very smart. But one was both smart and evil, uh, and that was a guy named Herod Antipas. And he kind of was the the ruler among equal brothers, and and he was a devious, you know, bad ruler at the time. And and one of the things that he did. Now, there's a lot of Herod, so it's hard to keep up with. You have Herod the Great, the dad, Herod Antipas, the smart and devious brother. Herod II, who was less smart, and then a woman named Herodias, okay? And so Herod Antipas actually charmed away, wooed away his own brother's wife to come and be his wife while she was still married to his brother. And you know what all the religious leaders did? You know what all the people that loved God's word and studied God's word and, and wanted to hold people to the fidelity of God's word? You know what they all did when this happened? Nothing. You know what they all said when this happened? This outrageous adultery among the leaders of Israel. You know what they all said? They said nothing. The only person that had the courage to speak up was John the Baptist. And people listened to him. But of course, it got him in trouble. Eventually, John was arrested. And of course, eventually, John was killed. But this is John, this bold, prophetic man that people admired, that people followed. Uh, that really had a word that was from the Lord. But where we meet John here, this is kind of before this. This is uh, before this time uh, when his ministry is growing and these religious leaders are saying, who are you? Uh, okay, we got to know who this guy is. What, what kind of authority is going on here? Now, it's, it's a very interesting question because at this time, there was a lot of messianic hope. If you remember, the people of Israel had had their own sovereign state back when people like King David were ruling, but eventually they were taken over. Uh, the northern kingdom was at first taken over by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah was taken over at first by the Babylonians, then by the Persians, then by the Greeks, and then at the time of Christ, they were being ruled by the Romans. Um, and there's an important event that happened kind of in that takeover time that, that really can't be 
overstated, and, and it's called the Maccabean Revolt. If you're familiar with the Jewish holiday Hanukkah, right, that is actually a celebration uh, centered around the events of the Maccabean Revolt. And so everybody at this time, they were, they were under the oppression of these uh, enemy nations, the nations like the Persians, the nations like uh, the Greeks, and the prophets of Israel, prophets like Isaiah, had talked about this coming day when another king would rise up, a king like David, and he would set Israel free from their oppression. He would free Israel from these enemy nations. He would restore them to be the rightful people of God as, as they were. And so there was all this messianic hope throughout this entire time when they were underneath the oppression of others. And there was a lot of people that they thought maybe this person is the Messiah. So it, 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 in the time that I mentioned the Maccabean Revolt, the, the Greeks basically had told the Jewish people that they couldn't worship the God of Israel. They couldn't go into the temple and offer sacrifices. They had to worship the pagan gods of the Greeks, and the people had enough with it. And this guy, Judah Maccabees, uh, or Judas Maccabeus, uh, stood up to them, and he said no. And he said, we're, we're going to fight. And they fought and they, they basically won back. Here's a picture of him. Uh, and they basically won back their freedom. They, they won back the right to worship. And so people thought to themselves, he's the one, right? This is the Messiah. This is who the prophets were talking about. But of course, eventually he was killed. He was put to death. They, they did win back their right to worship in the way that they wanted to, but they never won their freedom. After the time of Jesus, there was another very famous Messianic figure. Let's go to the next slide. Uh, this guy was Simon Bar Kokhba. And Simon Bar Kokhba, in the same kind of way, declared Jewish independence and said, we are a free sovereign state. We are no longer under the oppression of the Romans. Uh, and, and, and they even declared, this is fascinating, they actually declared that there would be a new calendar. So he said, we are a new state. We are not under the Romans. And it's year number one. The kingdom of God has come. And they actually minted coins. There's still coins you can put your hands on to this day from this time where it's year one, year two, year three. This new kingdom had come. And, and the Jewish people, of course, that didn't recognize Jesus at this time, this was after Christ. They thought, this is our Messiah. This is the one who has come. But of course, in the same kind of way, what happened to Simon Bar Kokhba, he was eventually killed by the Romans, and all of that hope was lost. And, and there was other figures along the way. There was many more. These were two of the most famous, but there was a lot of messianic hope around the time. So when these people are going out to talk to John, John is baptizing people, is calling them to repentance. He has this huge following. People believe that the words that he's saying are from the Lord. And so they come out to him, and it's interesting. They ask him who he was, and how does John respond? He just says to them, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> He's kind of guessing the question they want to ask, but he says, no, 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 don't worry. I'm not the Messiah. I am not the Christ. I, I am not this person. And then, of course, they said, well, well, are you Elijah? <laughs> okay, you're not the Christ. You're somebody. Now, if you remember the story, Elijah, great prophet of Israel, didn't die. He was taken up. We, we, Elisha gives testimony to this. He was taken up. Uh, by the chariot of fire up to God, to be with God. And so, in, in actually, the prophet Malachi had said that one like Elijah will come again. And so they said, this must be, this was Malachi was talking about. This is Elijah. And he says, no, I'm not Elijah. And then they say, are you the prophet? 
Well, the prophet that he was talking about there, they were talking about there, was Moses. In the same kind of way in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, a prophet like me will come. God will raise up a prophet like me from among your brothers. But again, John says, no, I'm not Elijah. I'm not the Christ. I'm not Moses. Here's who I am. I am a voice. I'm just a voice. I'm just the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness Prepare the way of the Lord. That's all that I am. You know, we were talking about this passage this week uh, with some of our pastors. It's hard for me to hear this and not think of uh, Handel's Messiah and not think of, uh, you know, just the words of Isaiah, the words of the prophet as it's presented in Handel's Messiah. I just, I love the way he kind of transcribes this, the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted. Every mountain and hill shall be made low. The crooked straight and the rough places plain. John says, I am not the Christ. I am not Elijah. I am not Moses. I'm just a voice. I'm just a guy that's pointing you to the Lord. I'm preparing the way for the Lord. And then he says, there is someone coming whose power and influence is so great, is so amazing, is so powerful that I am not even fit to untie his sandal. Now, this is really important and instructive for us because it's so different. When someone gets power, when someone gets influence, when people want to give you titles, when people want to make a big deal of your life and your career and the things you're doing, usually we receive that. Usually, if somebody comes to you and said, you're really important, you're really important, we say, you know what, I am. I actually am really important. I actually am someone. But, but I love John here. He says, no, no, don't look at me. Look away from me. I am not the man. Behold the man. Look at the man. I'm not even worthy to touch this man. I, I'm just a voice trying to make his path straight. And I think we have a lot to learn from this. You know, I, I uh, was having a conversation with someone this week about, you know, the events of the week, and, and they said, look, the only reason people care, this was kind of after the protest had began in Atlanta, and, and they said, the only reason people care about these things now is that it's come close to them. And I said, well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's why anybody cares about anything, right? I mean, don't, don't act like, you know, it, it's very easy to be self-righteous in these times. I said, you know, the only reason anybody cares about anything is that it intersects their life somehow is that it presses. That's actually the good thing about a protest, right? It makes you open your eyes to things. That's why people are doing this. So, you know, he was making the point of why these things were happening. But we care about what intersects our lives. We, we understand the whole world as it relates to our narrative. And I think that becoming a Christian is this. It, it's being less concerned about your narrative and your story and what is interacting with your story and what is interacting with your life and being more concerned with God's narrative and God's story and what he cares about, right? This is what John is doing here. He's saying, look, who I am is not important. What I care about is not important. My narrative here, that's not what's important. He's the one who's important. I'm pointing to him, I want to love what he loves. I, I want to honor what he honors. I want to care about what he cares about. And this, na this notion, this ideal, this is what has led Christians to do incredible things for others. 
right? Because it, we haven't waited around to say, well, when is this going to intersect with my life and when can I care about? No, we say, what does God care about? What does he love? What's important to him? It's what has led Christians to do amazing things for people all over the world. You know, my, my best friend, Barrett Fisher, who some of y'all have met, um, he's a missionary. He actually lives in Thailand now, but he, for a long time, he lived in Indonesia for 12 years. Okay. In 2007, he moved to Indonesia and he lived there for 12 years serving these people, loving these people, giving his life to these people. You know how many times Barrett had been to Indonesia before he moved there for 12 years? You know how many times he went over there before he moved there for 12 years? You know, I'm sure he spent summers there. He went on a bunch of trips there, right? I mean, that's what you would think. You know how many times he'd been there before he moved there for 12 years? Zero times. Because his affinity wasn't with the people of Indonesia necessarily. His affinity was with God. And he just wanted to love the people and the things that God loved. And because he knew God loved people in Indonesia, because he knew there was a need in Indonesia, he just responded, even though he sight unseen, even though he had no idea who he was walking into, he had no idea who he was about to serve. They could have been cruel to him. They could have persecuted him. They could have punished him. They could have done all these sorts of things. And it didn't matter because he, like John, was saying, it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what's intersecting with my life. It doesn't matter really the things that I'm passionate about. I want to be passionate about the things that God is passionate about. I want to care about the things that are close to his heart. He loved the people that God loved. And this is what John is doing. I, I am not the man. I am not the Messiah. I am just a voice. Look over there. Look at him. He is the answer. And this leads us well into our next point. We've kind of looked at who John was, but what did John say? Now, John's announcement, it's very famous in this passage. But it's very interesting if you think about what he says here. Um, he has just said, this Jesus, this one who is coming, I am not worthy to untie the most lowly part of him, right? The sandal, this is the, the dirtiest, the most lowly part of anyone. And, and John says, I'm not even worried to reach over there real quick and untie his sandals. He, that is how great he is. Later in the story, he says, the, the reason I knew of his greatness was because I saw the spirit of the Lord descend on him. Now, you and I probably wouldn't catch this language unless you, you, you know what's going on here, but this is king, this is kingly language. The anointing of the Spirit was, 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 a, was an anointing of the king, right? In Psalm 51, for example, when David is praying, don't take your spirit away from me after his sin with Bathsheba, what David is really praying is, don't take the kingdom away from me, right? Don't take the anointing away from me that you have given me to, to be a leader, to reign and to rule. Don't take my reign away from me. What John is saying when he says, I saw the spirit come on him and remain on him, right? The spirit interacted with other people for times for certain events, but the spirit came to Jesus and remained. What John is saying is he is actually the king. He is actually this one we've been waiting on. He has authority. He has power. This is the king. I can't even touch him. And you know what a king does? When a king comes, what does he do? How do you, how do you get to be a worthy king? How do, you, how do you reign over people? Why do people look to you? You know why? You know how? You know why we want to follow a king? Because a king defeats our enemies, right? 
We love a king because he's the guy that comes in with a big sword and he takes down all our enemies. And we say, make him king. He can defend us. He can protect us. He can fight for us. He can get rid of them. He can get rid of all of them who are causing us all of these problems. That's our king. He can put them down and he can lift us up. So, so this is what's going on. This is, the, this is the anointing of the spirit. This is what David did. He protected the people from the enemy nations. This is what the kings have always done. And so this is what the people have in mind. He's spirit anointed, powerful king. And so what John says in verse 36, when he announces Jesus is shocking. He's been talking about this one who he can't even untie his sandal. And then he says, behold the lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God, the Spirit-empowered man, the one on whom the Holy Spirit of God, the anointing of the kingdom, the one on whom the Spirit rests, the Lion, is also the Lamb. Now, the Lamb, those of you all that know your Old Testament, is the sacrifice. The, the Lamb is not strong. The, the Lamb is not one who goes out and power and defeats them. No, the lamb is this sacrifice. It's this substitute for the people. The, the lamb was what the high priest took and, and offered for the sin of the people. That was the lamb. And, and, and what John is saying here is the same one that was anointed by God, the same one that I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals, Jesus, the man, behold the man, he is also the lamb. This is totally expected for any king. Again, remember, the king, how do you become a king? You go kill the enemy. You go defeat the enemy. You go put down all of our enemies. But here's the deal. What if your greatest enemy wasn't something external, but rather it was something internal? What if the thing that was really killing you that was really threatening you wasn't something outside of you that the king would go and kill. But rather, what if the thing that was really your greatest threat was something inside of you? You have to ask the question, how would the king kill that? How would the king deal with that problem? How would the king deal with that enemy? You see, this is why Jesus came as a man. He came as a man to be like us so he could identify with us. You see, Jesus did defeat our great, our great enemy. He did defeat our greatest enemy. He did seat us, uh, set us free from our greatest threat. But in order to do that, Jesus actually had to become like us and he had to be the lamb. Because you see, our, our greatest problem the people of Israel's greatest problems, your greatest problem, my greatest problem, isn't them. It's not the outsiders. It's not something on the outside. It's not the enemy nation. No, my greatest problem is something internal. It's my own sin that has separated me from God. It's my own rebellion against God. 
this is my greatest problem. This is the thing that has led me into the darkness. This is the thing that has led me away from light. This is the thing that, that has led me to death. So in, in order for Jesus to be the king and defeat all our enemies and to defeat our greatest enemy, which is sin, the only way for him to do this, how could Jesus defeat an internal enemy of ours? He actually could, had to become like us. He had to become the lamb in our place. He had to take on our sin. He had to take, he had to identify with our soul so that he could take on the echoes of our heart. And how did he kill them? He took them on and then he was killed. He put them to death in his own death. He put sin to death by dying in our place. You see, Jesus actually defeated our greatest enemy by defeating us, by defeating what is natural and selfish and prideful in us. Jesus took on our record of sin and then died and then was killed. He is the lion. He is the king that has freed us from our greatest enemies. But in order for him to do that, he had to be the lamb. He had to die in our place. He had to become like us and take on our record. In order to really set us free from the thing that was killing us, Jesus had to be killed. This is who Jesus is. He is the invading king. He is the conquering king. But the kingdoms that he's really conquering are the little kingdoms that we all have that are in rebellion against God. And, and the, the life that he really gives, gives is when he puts those kingdoms to death. This is why John says, behold the Lamb of God. Do you recognize who you're really after? Do you recognize what you really need? A king that can really save people like you. The Romans aren't your biggest problem. The Greeks aren't your biggest problem. You're your biggest problem. And the only one that can save you, the only kind of king that can save you is a king who's also a lamb. Behold the lamb of God. So we've talked about who John was. We've talked about what John said. But thirdly, what did John do? John says in verse 31, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed. I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed. What does that mean? A baptism is a sign. It's a signpost. It's a picture. It, it has meaning. People are confused by Christian baptism, but it's really this beautiful picture of something. In the baptism of John... People went into the water as a sign of repentance. And, and water, and, and some of you all have heard me talk about this, water has always been, in Scripture, a sign of repentance and judgment, right? You think about the flood narrative, the people in the time of Noah, they're sinning against God. How is God bringing his judgment on the whole world? He does so with water. He does so with the flood. Think about the story of the people of Israel crossing the uh, the sea on dry ground. And then that same sea that is held back for their salvation, what happens to it? It collapses on the Egyptian army. It is a sign of judgment for them. Jonah, the great prophet who's running away from God. How does God show his judgment to Jonah for his disobedience, for his sin? What happens? He's on the sea. There's a storm. He's thrown into the water. And in fact, the Bible even says in the story of Jonah, when Jonah is thrown into the water, it says, and the sea ceased from its raging. See, water has always been synonymous with the wrath of God, if you will, with the judgment of God against 
our sin. And, and, and when Jesus, many years after the time of Jonah, when Jesus came and they said, what are you doing? Show us a sign. Jesus says, I will give you no sign except for the sign of Jonah. What does all of this mean? And how does it relate to baptism? And here's the deal. When you are baptized, when you are put under the water of baptism, it is a sign. You're, you're telling a story, if you will, that what I really deserve because of my sin is God's judgment. But just as Jesus has passed through the judgment of God, just as Jonah passed through the judgment of God, just as the people of Israel has passed through the judgment of God, just as Noah and his family have passed through the judgment of God, just as they have passed through the judgment of God, God in his grace has called me through the judgment. He's called me to life. Baptism reveals Jesus. John says, I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. I am showing you, John says, what he is going to do. He is going to pass through the judgment. He is going to go under the water, if you will, of judgment, the judgment of God, but then he is going to live. Jesus did die. He really endured God's judgment, but he didn't stay dead. He came out of the judgment. He was brought back to life. I came baptizing with water so that he might be revealed to Israel. You see, when you read the Old Testament and you read the story of Noah's family being saved, it should be a signpost to you that God brings his people through the judgment. When you read the story of the people of Israel crossing the sea on dry ground, being saved from their enemies, it should be a signpost to you that God saves his people from judgment. When you see Jonah, after blatant disobedience, being saved from death in the sea, to go out and be used by God, it should be a signpost for you that God redeems and saves his people from judgment. And when you are in a Christian worship service and see someone baptized, it's a signpost to you of what God does, of what he has done, of what he has done through Christ and what he is still doing. Jesus passed through the judgment on our behalf. Jesus took on our sin. He was the lamb who died in our place, passed through the judgment, and then is brought back to life. And in him, through faith in him, the same is true of you. This is, this is why Christian faith is so powerful. You see, in faith, as we look to Jesus, as we identify with Jesus, in his death we die. Our sin is put to death with him. In faith, as we look, to, uh, to look in faith to Jesus, in his resurrection, we are raised. We have the hope of new life. Through faith in Jesus, in his righteousness, we are declared righteousness. This all comes through repentance and faith, turning away, repentance, turning away from control of our little lives, giving over the control of our little lives um, to the Lord and faith, believing that God loves us, that he has saved us, that he's died in our place. John says, I came baptizing to show you who Jesus is, to show you who he's like, to show you what he's going to do. Jesus um, has saved us. He has saved us in his death. He has saved us in his resurrection. And baptism shows us this. But more than this, baptism doesn't only show us what Jesus has done for us. It also shows us what Jesus is going to do for us. Baptism is not just a signpost that in Christ we can be saved, raised, resurrected from our sin. 
but it's also a sign that one day in Christ, we, when we die, will be raised with him to life in his everlasting kingdom, to life in his kingdom forever. And so this is why John can say, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look to him. Turn away from your short and temporary existence and find life, real, eternal, meaningful life in Christ. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the testimony of John, for the testimony of, life, of his life, what he, who he is, what he has said, what he has done. And Father, I pray that even in this moment, in this day, as we, as we are worshiping here, I pray that, that Jesus would invade our lives, that he would take over our lives, uh, that he would um, open our eyes to see our need for him, he would lead us to repentance, that he would lead us to faith, that we would find our identity not in ourselves or in our little narratives, that we wouldn't relate the whole world to how important things are to us, but we would find our importance and find the heart of Christ, love the things that you love, find ourselves in, in the things that you care about, Lord. So Lord, give us uh, both in this moment a spirit of repentance and a spirit of faith. And I pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Hey, as we respond, um, there may be an area, you know, the Christian life, these ideas of repentance and faith so central that there may be an area of repentance that you really need to deal with at this time. There is a, there is a little revolution in your heart against the king who is the king of all, the king Jesus, against his kingdom, against his way. And, and you need to lay that revolution down this morning. You need to repent. And, and there may be, for some of you also, just a, a hesitation to faith. Do you really believe that Jesus loves you? I mean, this is an amazing thing to believe, that God became a man and actually loves you, not just like humanity, he loves you and you. Do you really believe that he has you in mind? Maybe this is an area where your faith needs to grow. Do you really believe that his plans are good, right? That his way actually is hopeful and helpful and, and joyful, that, that his way is right? Do you really believe that um, he's in control of all things? This is an uncertain time. It can be hard to continue to look to Jesus in these times. So you know, I, I guess I pray for you in this time an, an increased awareness of repentance, that we would, we would quit trying to take control of uh, the control of our lives away from Jesus and we would just turn it over to him. And an increased faith, we really trust him, we really love him. And so if you would like to talk about that, if you're, if you're here live and you feel comfortable, I'm gonna be standing in the back during this time of response. Um, and if you're watching at home, uh, I just encourage you, we have a text to pastor line. I think a slide's going to come up. You can text me. It's an anonymous text service. Actually, I, I, I don't even know who, who is texting unless you let me know that. But I'd love to hear from you uh, at this time. And I will follow up, if not just in the few, next immediate moment, sometime uh, later today. But let's, let's meditate on these things. May, may our repentance and the faith grow as we respond. That's what we've just heard.